Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon, and welcome to Heritage Events Live presents the State of the Wall and Immigration. Before we get started today, I'd like to share with you a few housekeeping notes to maximize your experience with us. First, the session is being recorded and the streaming recording will be emailed to you and posted on heritage.org within 48 hours of this event. Second, and most importantly, we encourage you to submit questions. You can submit questions through the question box and identify yourself by name and organization, if you so choose. Last and certainly not least, all attendees are in listen-only mode. And with that, I would like to invite our host to turn on their webcam and join us on screen. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Laura Reese, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to, to today's event, the State of the Wall and Immigration. We have a great program lined up for you today. In 2016, then-candidate Donald Trump campaigned heavily on border security and immigration issues. He promised to build a border wall, rescind the Obama administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, and enforce America's immigration laws. Many Americans voted for Donald Trump because of his immigration promises. While in office, President Trump has made many immigration changes to address caravans of illegal immigrants from Central America, terrorist travel to the US, asylum fraud, and more. Because the US Congress has been unable and unwilling to pass meaningful immigration legislation, the Trump administration has made policy and operational changes through executive orders and regulatory changes. So for the issues, let's begin with the wall. Building the border wall was a keystone of both Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and his administration. The Heritage Foundation has put together a video to provide an update on the state of the wall. Let's watch it now. A big wall on the southern border. That's what the Trump administration has built, and that is what they continue to expand. As of mid-October 2020, there are approximately 360 miles of wall built by the administration. That's over 539,000 tons of steel and 774,000 tons of concrete. And despite what critics say, this is all new wall system, replacing either dilapidated or ineffective wall or wall where nothing existed before. This wall is as high as 30 feet, complete with anti-climb features. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has recently made substantial headway on construction at a pace of nearly two miles a day. And by the end of 2020, the administration expects to meet and exceed their goal of 450 miles. The wall works. Don't take our word for it. Listen to the experts. Border Patrol officers have pushed for the wall for years. The wall stops would-be illegal aliens in their tracks and gives officers time to identify threats and respond. When wall is placed in high traffic areas, it drives illegal crossers to less navigable terrain and to ports of entry where CBP inspectors are ready and waiting. And Mexico is offsetting the cost of the wall 
by finally stepping up and doing something to stop illegal immigration to the U.S. Mexico sent over 20,000 soldiers to seal their southern border with Guatemala. Mexico has also hosted U.S. asylum seekers while their cases are pending in the historic Remain in Mexico program, saving the U.S. astronomical housing costs throughout their proceedings. And countless American lives have been saved from deadly drugs and crime associated with illegal immigration. Of course, additional steps need to be taken to improve border security with these threats in mind, but a physical barrier is a good start. For too long, politicians in D.C. have promised to improve border security. 360 miles and counting means that Americans are starting to get the border security they deserve. The Trump administration continues apace building the border wall. Recently, I sat down with the Department of Homeland Security Acting Secretary, Chad Wolf, to ask him about the border wall and key immigration changes made during this administration. Here now is some of our conversation. Well, thank you, Acting Secretary Wolf, for sitting down today and talking about border security and immigration. Um, it's such an important issue to the American people because it affects so many aspects of our lives, uh, education, health, yeah. the economy. Um, and as you've now encountered, uh, it, it evokes some emotional issues um, for, for the American public. Right. Um, so there have been many changes uh, in this area during this administration. So now is a good time, you know, well into year four to, yeah. to talk about some of the changes that have happened. Um, so let's start with the wall. Right. Um, when candidate Trump was, was running for, for president, that was a big issue for right. him. And the American people were behind it. They would chant, build that wall. Um, so when the administration started, Customs and Border Protection staff got right to work, right. Uh, looking at materials and designs. Um, so where, what is the state of the wall now? Well, I think what's important, Laura, is to remember that President Trump not only campaigned on uh, building uh, a border wall system, uh, but what he did when he came into office is he listened to the men and women of Border Patrol. He listened to the operators on the ground. Uh, he asked what they needed uh, as far as what that new border wall system and associated technology that they needed with it. And he listened to them. And so I think that's actually, um, it, it's a little bit unique. It's a little bit unique that a, a policymaker, particularly a president, is going to listen to operators on the ground. But that's what President Trump does. I asked the men and women, what do they need to do their job? What are the tools and resources that they need? Uh, and number one or number two every time is an effective border wall system, is that impedance and denial that's absolutely needed for them to do their job. Um, and so we're happy to be delivering that, uh, that asset to them. So there's been confusion about new wall, replacement right. wall. What's the easiest way to explain? I think the easiest way to look at it is capability. Uh, what's the capability before the new border wall system and what's the capability after the new border wall system is in place? And so what we know is uh, prior to a new border wall system is you would have uh, you would have a barrier that was either about eight feet high that you could almost push over, or you had vehicle barriers that individuals, if you're looking to come across the border, just simply walked around. Um, either way, you could get in the country pretty much undetected. Mm -hmm. um, and so that new border wall system is anywhere from 18 to 30 feet high. And again, has that fiber optic cable, so it alerts Border Patrol of anyone approaching uh, the new border wall system and then that impedance and denial allows them to be to be there essentially waiting on individuals if they try to uh, try to scale that that border wall system. So I look at it in capabilities. So before the new border wall system, almost no capability to stop to have that impedance and denial. 
after the new border wall system is in place is effective capability, capabilities that they've never had before. So when I look at new or replacement, I look at what the men and women, uh, the capabilities that they have. Uh, we know our critics and our opponents use uh, every tactic that they can to try to slow, delay, or stop uh, the building of the border wall system. And we'll continue to fight that. We continue to be successful court after court after court challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll continue to fight that because what we're doing is right. We know this is what uh, border security looks like. Uh, and again, I think it's important to re realize that um, President Trump made it clear. We don't need border wall system, the new border wall system on all 2000 miles. Um, we need it in effective places. We need it in places that are very difficult to patrol. Um, and so that's what we're doing. And again, it's a balanced approach to, to border security. So what impact has it had for the border patrol, for residents in the area, and, and just for Americans in general? Yeah, I think uh, we look at past uh, experience. So we're border wall uh, effective. Border wall goes up, uh, apprehensions go down, and over time, crime goes down in that area as well. So mm -hmm. that's really what we look at. We also look at what we're trying to do with the border wall system is funnel that illegal activity to areas of the, of the border uh, that we have more agents at, or we're trying to push them to ports of entry where we have technology, infrastructure, resources to further look at these individuals. And uh, we have certain groups uh, that see um, individuals, illegal aliens and others coming right through their land every day. They're concerned about that, not only for their safety, but the safety of their family and friends. And so they welcome Border Patrol. And we have a very collaborative relationship with most landowners uh, along that Southwest border. Uh, but we're going to continue. President Trump, if you recall, declared a, a national emergency in order to build the wall. So it, this is about national security. Uh, border security is national security. Um, and so we need that effective border wall system in strategic areas. And we're going to continue to push forward with that. So if there were administration change and the wall construction stopped, what would that mean for Americans? Well, I think it would mean less border security at the end of the day. Um, you're going to go back to needing uh, vast amounts of Border Patrol officers and agents. Um, and so if you choose not to invest in uh, infrastructure, a new border wall system, uh, you're going to have to secure that border if you make that choice. And assuming you're going to make the choice to secure the border, you're going to have to do that in a number of other ways that are perhaps more expensive over the long run. So that's, again, the very concerning, uh, concerning part. Let's talk a little bit about MS-13, gang. Right. Um, this president has really made a concerted effort to uh, have them arrested, yeah. prosecuted, and, and even removed. Um, what have you seen uh, these past four years in terms of uh, going after the gang activity, and, and how can we keep them out um, to begin with, uh, rather than um, having to spend the time and the money? from a departmental perspective and how do we target these, these groups? Uh, and that really starts, as you indicated, before they even get to our border, before they even come into the country. So working with our partners in the Northern Triangle country, El Salvador specifically, making sure that we are identifying these individuals, disrupting their cash flow. Uh, and we do that a number of different ways. We have embedded teams uh, in Central America that are working with our partners to try to identify these individuals making sure that we do hold them accountable. So when they do get to the uh, end of the US, uh, that we identify who they are, we deport them, we hold them accountable, we prosecute them. So there's a variety of different ways. None of them is a silver bullet, um, I think, but it's, it's equally, uh, I think they're all very, very important. And it starts though with uh, these strong partnerships that we have in, in Central America. So there have been a lot of immigration changes made, yeah. both uh, policy and operationally in this administration. Too many that we could cover here. Right. 
What do you think have been some of the most important changes and why? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. So we talked about the new border wall system when we talked about border security. I think when you talk about uh, restoring integrity to the immigration system, president talks about both of those, border wall or, or border security, restoring integrity to the immigration system. And again, I'll have to give the president just a lot of credit for, these are two difficult issues. Uh, you know, huge backlogs of asylum cases, not being able to hear legitimate asylum cases because everyone knew if you just flood the system, then you get in. Um, and so really rooting out that fraud. I'm not sure why anyone would want to see that much fraud in the system and say, yo, it kind of works. Of course it doesn't work. Um, so we've really been focused on trying to root out that fraud while still giving those individuals. And we do know, look, we know that some individuals that come here really need that asylum protections that are offered under law. But it's trying to identify the ones that really need it, that have that, those meritorious claims versus others that are just trying to game the system. And so most of these changes, all these changes have been done within the executive branch. Right. No, no help from Congress. It's unfortunate. Uh, you know, I've been here since day one of this administration and we've gone through a couple of different iterations. Uh, we put together back in 2017 about 73 different uh, legislative changes that we needed. Um, and then we talked to Congress about that. They said it was too difficult. It was too hard. So we, we pared that down to about 30. Again, they said it was too hard, too difficult. We pared that down in 2000, late 2018 to four ask, four, uh, having to do with Flores and asylum and, and a few others. Still, they said, it's too hard. So at some point, you know, uh, this administration said, okay, got it, you're not gonna do anything. We're gonna take action within our authorities to make sure that we continue, again, to root out this fraud. And we'll continue to, to do what we believe is right. We'll continue on our regulation front or changing policies within our authorities. And we'll see at the end of the day what courts do. We'll continue to fight those very aggressively. Uh, we believe we're in the right, we have the authority. I think what's disconcerting and what we have to remind Congress from time to time is uh, whether we're talking about MPP or we're talking about a variety of other things, it's, it's authority that Congress has given us. Mm -hmm. Now, certain administrations may have never utilized that authority, uh, but we usually point to them in US code exactly why, you know, where's the authority that we're doing something and they kind of look at it and say, oh yeah, okay, got it, but you shouldn't do it. Well, uh, th obviously that's a political question and we can have that debate, but uh, I think there's a little debate on whether we have the authority to do something or not. And we've been very clear, we're gonna continue to utilize the authority that Congress has given us or the authority that we just inherently have as, as the executive branch. The Heritage Foundation wants to thank Acting Secretary Wolf for sitting down with us to give his perspective on these very important issues to so many Americans. Change, opposition, and an uncooperative Congress. That sums up the past nearly four years of border and immigration issues. I now invite my heritage colleague, Cully Stimson, onto the screen. Cully is the senior legal fellow and manager of the National Security Law Program, and he will dive into more detail of the immigration changes, the results, and the effects on real people throughout the country with our impressive panelists today. Cully, over to you. Thank you very much, Laura, and we're very lucky to have Laura at Heritage. She's a former chief of staff at DHS, so she has a wealth of experience. Uh, I invite my fellow panelists and my colleagues, uh, Tom, Maria, AJ, and Hans, to join us on the screen, and I want to introduce them. Um, before I do that, I want to engage in a little sh uh, shameless self-plugging uh, and uh, note that at the bottom of your screen, you'll see uh, uh, two papers. 
written by heritage scholars, one assessing the Trump administration's immigration policies, and another called enforcing immigration law, what the states can do to assist the federal government in enforcement of immigration policies. Uh, and I encourage you to read that. And then Laura, uh, who just uh, handed it over to me, has a paper coming out tomorrow at noon, uh, uh, comparing the Trump uh, immigration policies to what uh, uh, Vice President Biden would offer uh, were he elected. And so, uh, so uh, with us today, we're delighted to have Tom Homan. Uh, many of you know him. He's the former ICE director and 34-year veteran of immigration enforcement. Maria Espinosa uh, founded the Remembrance Project, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to honoring and remembering Americans who have been killed by illegal aliens. Her work has led to the development of the Stolen Lives Quilt, a collection of banners showing the faces and names of our country's victims of illegal alien killings. Maria has been an active public speaker about the plight of the American family affected by these crimes. Sheriff A.J. Lauterback is a the fifth generation Texan, you can tell who he is. He's the guy with the hat. Um, and a 40-year law enforcement professional serving in, as his fourth, in his fourth term as the Jackson County Sheriff down there in Texas. In January of 2020, uh, AJ was asked by the Trump administration to represent Texas on the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice as chairman of the Grants Committee. He's also led the charge on U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement's 287G program uh, in the Coastal Bend region. And last but not least is my colleague and friend, Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, he's the manager of the election law program at Heritage, and he's a former DOJ official. Uh, and so welcome all. Let's uh, turn, if we could, right to where uh, the secretary and Laura left off, and that's the wall. Uh, I'd remind everybody that in 2006, the Congress passed the Secure Fence Act, which authorized 700 miles of border wall. And all of a sudden, Trump gets elected, and all of a sudden, a border wall is very controversial. And I'd remind people that the senators in 2006 who voted for the border fence was Senator Obama, Senator Feinstein, Senator Clinton, and Senator Schumer. All right, uh, Sheriff Lauterback. Uh, we're on the wall right now. What effect, I know your county's not right on the border, but you're in Texas. What's the effect the new uh, border barrier systems had on Texans? That always helps. Thank you, Cully, for, uh, for the question and the Heritage Foundation for asking me on this panel. Uh, the wall as a physical barrier to stopping the criminality that we see daily here, if not hourly, on the travel route into Houston, the number one human trafficking center and hub uh, in the United States with large amounts of narcotics that come through. Um, the wall has done a tremendous job of supporting the wall. It's smart. It's, uh, it's necessary. We've done it for a very long time. And, uh, you know, I'll tip my hat to the president and this administration for getting the wall and, and that process done, despite uh, Congress's uh, uh, lack of action in that area. So the wall, uh, understand this for our uh, listeners, the, the wall is necessary. Uh, the, the criminal issue, the criminality that we face here in Texas as a border state to Mexico is larger and more expansive than the public uh, really cares to know. Um, so I, I approve of the wall. It's, it's, it's just, uh, just a great thing. Yeah, and I know that everyone on this panel on Heritage, of course, 
itself is pro-legal immigrant. We take in 1.1 million legal immigrants per year. That number hasn't changed under the Trump administration, uh, barring the COVID issue that affected the entire world. But Maria, pick up on where AJ left off. From your perspective, uh, do you think the wall has affected Americans? Absolutely. Uh, Colleen, thank you so much for inviting me on this uh, panel through Heritage Foundation. And, you know, the wall has helped Americans and, uh, by stopping illegal crossings or certainly um, greatly decreasing it. And looking in San Diego, there is a wall there that was completed and illegal alien crossings dropped 95%. But it's also a psychological effect as well, where Americans understand that President Trump's efforts are um, helping them be safe and a completed wall will make Americans safe. We all know that a border along our southern, uh, a wall along our southern border will absolutely make a, make for a better and safer America. Yeah, Tom, you know, uh, I used to be a prosecutor in San Diego before I moved east to become a prosecutor. And I think a lot of the defendants that uh, I was prosecuting were illegal aliens. Uh, accused of crimes there in San Diego County. What, from your perspective, because you've been on that border wall and that border a lot, most of your adult life, what effect has the new wall system done to enhance the safety of the agents or affected the agent's job? Well, look, all you got to do is look at what happened in San Diego, right? In 1984, I was a border patrol agent in the San Diego sector. And you go down on the soccer fields just east of Tijuana, and we'd apprehend over a thousand illegal aliens in a shift, in one shift, eight hour shift. Sometimes it was several thousand in a day. And now that when San Diego finally built that first wall that uses air landing mats, they got 96 percent operational control of the border. They went from thousands a day to 40 a day. So it shows the operational effectiveness. And and I talked to Rodney Scott, who's the chief patrol agent there, and, he, and it just makes the border patrol agent's job so much better because walls don't stop people. Walls slow people down. So it, it, it gives time for the board to respond. And the new smart wall technology that the secretary talked about, they're going to know if you try to dig under it. They're going to know if you try to climb it. And it's about the board to respond. And for those that actually can make it up and over, which are very few. And like the secretary says, it really funnels people to an area where board can use less assets to arrest anybody that's entered the country illegally, which is extremely important because what the wall does not only protect America, it's, it's America's wall, not President Trump's vanity wall. This is a wall that Border Patrol experts needed. And the data clearly shows wherever a wall has been built, it has reduced illegal immigration, illegal drug flow. That is a fact that the left can't fight. So the president's doing exactly what Border Patrol wanted, exactly what they needed, and he's putting it exactly where they wanted it first, based on their prior or their protocol. And one more throw to you, Tom, before we pivot to sanctuary cities and, and the sheriff. If the administration reaches its goal of 450 miles of new border barrier system, uh, do they need to do more? I mean, I know the border is over 2,000 miles long. Some areas are just not transitable. What, what's your opinion, having spent most of your adult career down there? Of course. They need to continue building that wall where it makes sense. Border Patrol came up with a, with a, uh, a protocol plan on where they need to wall first. But look, there's some areas where there's, it's a flood zone. So they can't have the ballots. You need a solid concrete barrier that holds back floodwaters also. But there's areas that the topography is just impossible to put a wall. And that's where they use smart technology. They use, you know, drones and other, other you know, high-speed technology to protect the border. So they need to continue the wall, but they also need to consider other 
uh, other aspects of what will work as a wall, whether it's a virtual wall used by drones and electronic surveillance. But yes, look, every mile wall built, not only protects this country, you're saving lives. And with the president putting this wall up, 31% of women, less, less, less women are being raped making that journey, less children are dying. So unless disease comes across that border, unless drugs come across that border, it makes sense to continue what this president started. Right, Coley, may I add to that? You jump right in, yep. You know, we're also talking about discouraging these um, illegal aliens who steal identity, steal jobs, and utilize our resources and not put into the system like American taxpayer does, but also injure and kill Americans. And that is first and foremost. Yeah, and I think we can all agree that, you know, there's a lot of reasons to want to come to the United States, uh, and we want people to come to our country. We want them to do it legally, uh, and there is a system in place, not perfect, uh, to do that. Let's shift, if we could, AJ, to the sanctuary city issue. You hear from pro-sanctuary city folks uh, that the policy is necessary uh, because uh, for police to have a trusted relationship with the immigrant community, including some illegals in those communities, uh, they have to provide them sanctuary, otherwise they won't report crime. So it's actually a pro-law enforcement uh, policy in a way. What, what do you say to that that argument? I say it's wrong, Cully. Let me start here. How does a professional law enforcement officer pick and choose what laws they're going to support and what they're going to enforce and who they're going to work for? Now you ask your, your listeners out here and you ask the American public out here, how does a professional law enforcement in this country, uh, how does any officer who's certified by a state uh, or local government, uh, state of Texas, pick a state, that are certified uh, and take an oath to protect the law, protect the citizens, uh, follow the rule of law, how do we, how do we get into a position uh, where we're not going to do that? Um, you know, as a as a professional peace officer uh, for a very long time now, I've never understood that. There are many sheriffs in here. We, in Texas alone, uh, we have the most 287G programs in the nation, and that's because we follow the rule of law here. Uh, we hope to add more. But um, to your pivoting to your question about whether or not it's accurate or truthful that um, we need illegal aliens to, to have some type of protection system if they, are, if they are a victim of a crime or if they have information or a witness to a crime. And the federal government has a process in place to actually protect them even further. And I, and I think it's an excuse. I, I think it's just a, a, a complete lie uh, that has been formatted over and over again out here to the public about that. We don't have trouble with people reporting crimes, whether illegal or not. They find a way to do that. Uh, and we find a way to try to protect them and keep them in the country until that process is over. Uh, so they're here illegally and we can't we can't change that and they can't either. And so have again, any of your have any of your deputy sheriffs come to you, AJ, and said, Hey boss, I'm sorry, but I just can't do my job because um the, the folks who are witnesses to this case or the folks who are victims in this case are here illegally and they, they won't talk to me. We have never had a case where an illegal alien who is either a victim or a witness to a crime, uh, which has their own special visas for that, have ever gone to a prosecutor or, or one of our officers out here uh, in a multi-county area and said, um, we're, um, we're just not able to, uh, to uh, 
talk to you about any type of crime. That's not happening out here. Mm -hmm. If I if I could Maria, add to, if I could add jump to in, Tom, and then I want to move to Maria. Go ahead, Tom. I jump on AJ's remarks real quick because he's right on the money. But the, for the folks that are watching, Sanctuary Cities, they are they are jurisdictions that don't get access to ICE to the jail. Okay, we're talking about access to a jail where they already chose to take someone's liberty away and lock them in a jail cell because they, they're either a public safety threat or flight risk. So we want access to the bad guy in the jail. And for the left to argue, well, that's going to, you know, we need to protect victim and witnesses, need to, need to feel comfortable going to police. We got to protect immigrant communities. Let me explain real quick why that don't work because we want access to the bad guy. We don't care where the victim witnesses even are. We're looking for, we want access to the jail. And I argue this, when you knowingly release a public safety threat back in the public, an illegal immigrant, he's going to likely reoffend in the very neighborhood in which he lives, the immigrant community. So you put the immigrant community at greater risk of crime. Not only that, ICE cannot get the guy in jail. Now he's got to go to the community and find him. What's going to happen? He probably, we're probably going to find others. So you put the immigrant community at greater risk of crime. You put the immigrant community at greater risk of, of ICE arrest. And you put law enforcement officers at, at, at great risk. Just, you just need to ask the immigrant community one question. Would you rather have ICE in your jail or in your community? What do you think going to say? So this will all protect victim, victim witnesses. It's false. ICE can actually give a victim a crime a visa if we knew they existed. So I, that is just a false narrative. So I want to just piggyback what AJ said. It just doesn't make sense. It's a false assumption. Bria, I want you to jump in here, and then I'm going to turn to Hans, because it's not just city officials who are applauding and and furthering sanctuary policies. It's some judges, including one judge we wrote about in Boston. I want you to talk about that piece, Hans. But Maria, over to you, jump into this conversation. Right. You know, Kelly, what I have seen in these sanctuary jurisdictions is that it's intentional and in complete defiance. Um, all that has risen dramatically. And not only are there sanctuary cities, there are sanctuary counties and sanctuary states. Um, you know, so these jurisdictional leaders are absolutely um, in defiance of President Trump's law and order, and they refuse to give up and cooperate with the federal government, these criminal illegal aliens. And not only that, in Houston Harris County, the county judge and the county commissioner's court, and where I testified against this uh, proposal, they created a legal defense fund for illegal aliens. And this is to assist them with their deportation matters. This is a civil matter, not a criminal matter. So now we have taxpayer dollars going to assist illegal aliens with their civil cases. And that is wrong. So these are millions of dollars that we're talking about that will be going out the door. Um, and these, again, the American taxpayer is left holding the bag that we need people to become active and also speak out. So these liberal cities um, are more dangerous as we can see across the country than ever before because they are emboldened. We have a lot to cover, gang, and I want to uh, be mindful of the fact that there is a lot to cover and I want to do it. Hans, jump in and tell the folks about the judge up in Boston and what she did and what happened to her in the end. Uh, if I can, before I do that, just just very quickly on the points that uh, uh, Sheriff Lauterbach and, and Tom and Maria have raised. Look, um, this isn't an, a small problem. General Accounting Office, GAO, has done several reports on the criminal histories of illegal aliens uh, who've been imprisoned in both federal prison and state prisons. And we are literally talking about um, hundreds 
hundreds of thousands of Americans and uh, other aliens who've been victimized by illegal aliens um, who have been released from prison and have gone on to then uh, commit further crimes. In fact, one of the best um, continuing reports on this is it down in Texas, the Texas Department of Public Safety has started releasing reports on all of the uh, criminals that they have arrested and convicted in the state uh, who are in the, in the state illegally. And we're not talking about a few thousand, we're not talking about tens of thousands, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of crime committed by illegal aliens who, uh, if they were not in the country, would not be in a position to um, commit those crimes. Uh, the judge that we're talking about, uh, uh, Kelly and I both wrote an article about this, was uh, she's a state court judge in Massachusetts. Uh, she has been indicted by a federal grand jury for obstruction of justice along with her bailiff. Uh, the allegations are that she had uh, an illegal alien in her courtroom for uh, uh, local, local charges, I believe it was drug charges, uh, ICE had a, served a detainer on them. A detainer means that uh, when locals are done with an illegal alien, ICE wants to come in and pick them up so they can deport them from the country. Uh, the allegations are that when she discovered that there was a detainer on this illegal alien and that an ICE agent was in her courtroom to pick up this illegal alien after she was done with him, she uh, instructed the ICE agent to leave her courtroom and then had her bailiff help the illegal alien out the back door of the courtroom and out the back door of the courthouse so he could evade arrest. That kind of thing is not only dangerous for local communities because they're allowing repeat criminals back into the community where they can commit crimes, it is endangering the safety of our federal immigration agents. Because if they are picking up illegal aliens, criminal illegal aliens in the jails, they can do it without any danger to themselves because if you're in jail, you don't have a weapon. If they are forced to go out in the community to find uh, these often cr uh, violent criminal aliens who may be armed, uh, in essence, these sanctuary policies are, in like I said, endangering the lives and safety of ICE agents. And that's a direct result of what local officials are doing with these very unwise, really foolish and reckless sanctuary policies. Yeah, and these, these uh, uh, misapplications or abuses of the law have real consequences. Of course, we're not saying that most uh, illegal aliens are criminals. Obviously, we're not saying that, but we're saying the ones that are, are provided uh, safe haven in sanctuary cities, and it makes it more dangerous for everybody, including the very communities that the left tries to pretend to right. protect. Let's pivot to MS-13 and gangs, Tom. Uh, describe the gang activity ICE encountered before the Trump administration and what changes occurred in the last four years, briefly. Well, gang enforcement's always been a priority for ICE, but under this current administration, we actually got the funding and the support of the White House to create task forces across the country with local and state law enforcement officers, such as the MS-13 task force up on Long Island. So the, the partnerships have grown and the DOJ, not. DOJ should do their thing, DHS did their thing. Now we're combining our activities, our intelligence. We're sharing intelligence with law enforcement agencies. We're creating multi-agency task, multi task forces to include both DOJ and DHS, which has never happened before. So the president, he called in the various leaders of all these law enforcement agencies and wanted them to work together. And the results have been tremendous. MS-13 arrests are at a record high. And you know I think we're all familiar with the most 
probably the most violent gang on the planet, those arrests are at a record high. And so, you know, the problem is, again, jumping back to sanctuary cities, the, 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 the expansion of sanctuary cities help protect those people. For instance, I just mentioned Long Island. The, 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 the Rikers Island Jail, Rikers Island, releases criminal aliens, criminal gang members to the street every single day because Rikers Island, New York, you kicked ice out of Rikers Island. They used to have, we used to have seven, eight, seven to eight agents there every day, work there. We able to get these MS-13 members. So even though the president has given us the tools and the money and, and, the, and the policies to work collectively together to have, to have a better results on gang interdiction, sanctuary cities puts that at risk because now we have to, as, as Han said very, very nicely, now officers have to go on the street and knock on the door to arrest a violent gang member who's most likely going to be armed rather than arrest them in a safety and security of county jail. So hats off, this administration has given us the tools, the money, and, and the policies to work together as a, as a feds, local, and state all in one bunch. But again, sanctuary cities has put a big dent in that. In that uh, Maria, jump jump in here. How how has gang activity affected the members of your organization, the Remembrance Project? Oh, extremely um, has affected our organization extremely, Cully, because we have more and more Americans who have been harmed and killed. We focus on the killings of Americans, and I'll give you one instance where not only sanctuary cities and the increase in gang uh, membership here in the United States because of our open borders, which President Trump is trying to uh, stop and certainly um, greatly curtail. Um, in Houston, there was a gang member who um, killed, um, he was in prison for 63 months. And uh, while in prison, this gang member attacked another gang member, nearly killing him. And that should have been a mandated 20 year sentence. However, the judge did him a favor and let him out in five years. If that illegal alien has served the full sentence, he would not have been on Houston streets, sanctuary city of Houston, Texas, to kill young Spencer Goldbatch, who was a 25 year old entrepreneur who employed nine people, and here we are in, in this uh, panel discussion, and uh, Congress, and I put a lot of blame on Congress, has not acted, did not take the opportunity to act while uh, President Trump um, was in office in, in the first two years of his office. Sheriff, anything to add here? Sure, absolutely. MS-13 deals in savage violence, personal savage violence. Their currency, of which they are rich, is in violence, period. The American public has no idea what these men are capable of. Whether they're in prison or whether they're in the public, violence is, is their method. That's what they specialize in, and that's why the president uh, and this administration uh, has developed the policies he has to, to help us control MS-13. You know, most folks probably don't realize uh, that crime has been on the decrease for decades in our country, thanks in large part to the work that Tom and your folks and colleagues and Sheriff, your folks have been doing and, and uh, traditional uh, uh, prosecutors who are independent. Um, and incarcerations have been going down for decades too. Uh, it peaked during your all's career, Tom and, and Sheriff, and now we've seen a, a, a sharp decline uh, I think one of the dangers here is this uh, rise of rogue prosecutors, uh, Soros-backed, uh, so-called progressive, or what I call rogue prosecutors who are refusing in sanctuary and other cities to prosecute folks. Uh, Maria, I want to pivot uh, and focus really on um, angel families. Tell folks what angel 
individual families are. Uh, and then um, uh, talk about the, uh, the office uh, called Voice and why and how that was created. Wonderful. Yes, well, we call angel families, the angel moms and dads are the parents and family members of Americans who were killed by illegal aliens. And these are 100% preventable killings, Cully. If only our laws were enforced, and of course the sanctuary cities were eliminated, um, co cooperating with the federal government, um, we would have a safer communities and these illegal aliens would not have access to them, um, to our loved ones. And of course, a, a wall would greatly um, affect the, uh, the safety in our communities. Uh, President Trump in 2016 promised me and my organization that he would do more for these angel families um, with whom we work. And he created the Office of Voice, Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. He made a promise, he kept his promise, and um, here we are, there is a place for the angel families to go for further assistance. I do believe that we have to take a closer look in these uh, courts because we have these liberal judges who want to legislate uh, from the bench. Uh, and we have to be very cognizant as individuals um, in your local areas um, and identify these problems and take action to stop and eliminate these elected officials. So if, if folks know about um, individuals who were murdered uh, at the hands of an illegal alien and that person was convicted in a court of law. Should they reach out to you and your organization so you can include those names on your list? And if so, how do they do that? Yes, let me correct myself. I didn't mean to say eliminate these officials. I meant to vote them out. Right, um, I get that. People understand that. <laughs> I want everyone out there to get that. Um, right. They can reach out to us. Uh, yes, therememberanceproject.org and we will memorialize their loved ones and you know, point them in the right direction, point them to the Office of Voice. Um, you know, so yes, it can certainly reach out and um, you know, our hearts go out to them and, and ask God to, to um, bring them peace in this terrible time. So in our remaining 20 minutes, I wanna cover a few topics starting with DACA. And Hans, I wanna pivot over to you. You've written a lot about DACA. Um, right. The Supreme Court handed down a decision on DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals for those of uh, you who aren't familiar with the term. Uh, and since the Supreme Court didn't strike the revocation of DACA, they simply remanded it back uh, to, to the administration. What's likely to happen next and what needs to happen? And is it even possible with the remaining time in this administration or is the next president, whoever he is, going to have to deal with it? Well, just, just to quickly make a couple of points about that. First of all, Look, this, the DACA program was uh, far beyond the constitutional statutory authority of President Obama. He cannot, no president can create a general amnesty program, administrative amnesty program for illegal aliens. Uh, Congress has set out very specific laws on uh, what alien, who, what, which aliens can come to the United States, which ones are here legally, and um, uh, the, the president can't just simply override that and say, not only uh, are we going to consider you to be uh, lawfully president of the U.S., but we're also going to grant you benefits such as work permits. Uh, that can't be done. Uh, the president, President Trump, of course, uh, directed DHS to end that program. Various courts had said, uh, various lower courts had said that President Obama didn't have the authority to, to do this. Uh, he directed them to end the program that was challenged. 
the challengers actually tried to claim that what uh, the president had done in ending the DACA program, that he was acting both unconstitutionally and he was violating the law. What the Supreme Court said, and this was Chief Justice Roberts, unfortunately siding with the four liberals, was that no, uh, the president had acted with his, within his constitutional and statutory authority to end the program, but that he hadn't given a sufficient explanation for why they, they were ending the program. Um, I think it was Justice Thomas uh, or Justice Alito who actually said that the program was unlawful from the start. Uh, why, why would you need to give an explanation for ending an unlawful program? But so the point is, as you said, the Supreme Court simply ruled it, that the administration hadn't given an adequate explanation for ending the program. So that means they could still do that, give an adequate explanation, and then end the program. Um, is there enough time in the remaining administration to do it? I'm not sure there is. Uh, it might take a second term for this president uh, to end the program. And, and that's something we're just gonna have to see what, what happens with it. But providing amnesty is a very bad idea. All that does is attract even more illegal aliens into the country. That's a proven from uh, prior amnesties that were created, and it's just not a, a very wise policy. Tom, why, in your opinion, should DACA recipients not get amnesty? Well, first of all, let me touch on Hans real quick. He, he, I agree with everything Hans says. In, in the finding of the Supreme Court, they gave DHS a roadmap. They laid out what they didn't do per the Administrative Procedures Act, how they didn't do it right, but they gave them a roadmap how to do it right. And I'm, I'm kind of disappointed DHS hasn't done that because they, they made it pretty easy for them to do that. DACA, there should be no doc, clean DACA fix because look, when DACA was created FY12 illegally, what happened in FY13, 14, 15? Hundreds of thousands of family units come across that border, women with children. Why? Because that might be the next DACA population. They see this country has shown over and over again, with, if you get in this country illegally and you hang out long enough, we're going to give you something. We're going to give you amnesty. That was the lesson. I mean, that was the lesson from the Simpson-Mazzoli Act during the Reagan administration, right? The offer right. was, we'll grant amnesty to these two million or so folks. You guys provide the funds, Congress, to build a border barrier and enforce uh, immigration law. Uh, they gave the amnesty out, and the rest of the stuff never really came in time, and the message was loud and clear, right? Isn't that what you've talked about before? Absolutely. Here we are right now. So you got this docu population, it's 800,000, whatever it is, but you got almost 300,000 family units that cross the country illegally after DACA was created. What are you going to do with them? That's your next docu population. So we have to show there's a consequence to deterrence to knowingly violating these laws. The 300,000 families came across this country, over 92% lost their case. They've been ordered removed. They didn't, they didn't leave. They're, they've become fugitives or they're, they're in the United States they're waiting for the next giveaway. So this country has to take a stand. We have a nation of laws. There's consequences and deterrence to illegal entry in this country. Sheriff, there's this meme out there that these DACA recipients are all law-abiding folks, and I suspect a lot are, uh, but there's others who aren't. Tell us about those. No, USCIS, uh, their latest report showed uh, over 110,000 or 12% of the uh, 889,000 uh, DACA recipients. Uh, had committed serious crimes um, or serious misdemeanors or a series of serious misdemeanors. So, um, you know, from the criminality part of this whole process here, as we look, we always find 
um, the criminal element uh, in huge numbers. And it's no different than DACA. In DACA, as parents came over illegally and brought their children with them, um, you know, it's not a program that, uh, that should be in existence at all. Um, so, you know, I, I would uh, promote the fact on, on a policy, uh, on an illegal program, that that uh, be done away with as soon as possible. Now, Maria, I know you think that DACA should not be part of a grand bargain with Congress. Tell us more about that. Correct. You know, Colleen, either we have laws, laws or we do not have laws. You know, it's absurd to negotiate with illegal aliens because they have no status in our country. They are here illegally. Yes, their parents brought them here illegally, but they're still in the country illegally. And it's unlawful for anyone to remain here who has not gone through the application process and requested to ask for permission to enter. Um, the baseline I always say is this. We do not have to allow anyone into our country. It is a privilege to come to the United States. We also look at the jobs that these DACA um, illegal aliens ha have that should go to our American youth who have to, you know, they're either unemployed or they have to re-educate themselves. There's also what we call the brain drain um, from the countries from where these illegal aliens came. You know, those countries need, um, any intelligent people. Um, so we shouldn't be enticing in any way these youngsters to come here, especially come here illegally. Um, so th and that's where we stand. We cannot negotiate with illegal aliens. Since we, got started a little, since we got started a little late, we got about 12 minutes and we'll end a little about five after. Tom, I know you're chomping at the bit here, but let me let you talk what you're going to talk about. But let me pivot also and say, because I want to pivot to, to asylum is, um, you know that we've written at Heritage about how immigration judges are the only judges that don't have the ability to uh, issue summary judgments and dismiss worthless claims. And they also don't have the authority to dismiss a pleading on its face. They also you don't have contempt authority, even though Congress 23 years ago gave them contempt authority, but they can't use it. So these courts are, are designed to fail, essentially. Um, but you talked in the, in the prep session uh, for this about the three loopholes that Congress needs to fix. So say what you want to say about Maria's piece and then pivot to the three loopholes that Congress really needs to fix in the asylum context. On Maria's piece, I just want to say this discussion is always frustrating to me because I get a lot of these kids, these DACA recipients, you know, they, they call them dreamers and a lot of them are, you know, good college students and law-abiding other than being here lately. I get it. But you know what? The angel moms and dads, they had kids too and they're dreamers. Right. They had a dream of being married and having children, living an American life, but they were snuffed out. And, and I, I, I don't see Congress having hearings on that. They have hearings on DACA, but not on the, 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 the so many children that have been killed at the hands of the aliens. So that just frustrates when we talk about that. But the three loopholes are easy. Look, the President Trump, this administration has illegal immigration on about 80 percent of the southern border with, because of the help of Mexico, as you heard Chad will say. But there's three things Congress needs to address to make this a permanent fix. Because if Mexico decides tomorrow we're going to stop helping, we're in trouble. So the TVPRA, Trafficking Victim Protection Act, we need to be able to treat children from Central America the same way we treat children from Mexico. Once you come across that border, if it's ascertained you're not a true victim of trafficking, we should be able to remove them back to the country, to their families, and just like we do with Mexican children. Second of all, Florida Settlement Agreement. You know, Congress says, you know, Ninth Circuit said we can only detain 20 uh, families for 20 days. That's not enough time to see a judge. Now, under the Obama administration, we first, first started having that by 14. We held families about 45 days. 
in our first family residential center. Guess what happened? 90% lost their case and we sent them home. Guess what happened? The numbers dropped because we showed a consequent deterrence. So we need to overturn the Florida Settlement Agreement. Let us detain these people in a family residential center, not a jail, long enough to see a judge, which is not indefinite, as the left likes to say. It's about 40 days. And finally, the asylum. Look, if you look at the data, those Central Americans that claim asylum at the border, nine out of 10 never get relief from the U.S. government because they simply don't qualify. Escaping poverty doesn't qualify for asylum. And if Congress wants that, they need to change the whole law. But if 90% are not getting relief, but 90% pass their first interview because it, the, the threshold to pass their first interview is so low, then they get to the United States, they disappear, half don't show up in court. And again, 90% don't get relief because if you go to court, if they actually show up in court, the threshold is much higher. So nine out of 10 lose your case. Well, we're asking them to fix the asylum. That first interview should be more in line with a judicial review. So they're not released in the United States. It's catch and release. They go in the wind again to wait for the next giveaway program. If we really want to control the border, we need those three fixes from Congress, and they have failed to do so, even back when I was ICE director. I met with numerous Congress people, please get this fixed. It's three years later, they still haven't done it. They haven't even talked about it. Yeah, and based on our research, uh, we've demonstrated uh, in our research that uh, if immigration judges were given summary judgment authority and the ability to dismiss cases on their face, if they lack uh, legal sufficiency, at 50 to 60, maybe even as high as 70% of those cases would be dismissed early instead of taking the almost 700 days it takes for, for a case to go from cradle to grave in an immigration court, which is just ridiculous. Holly, um, also, I was jump in, in real quick, Maria. Yeah. I was in a House committee hearing in 2017 where a USCIS um, official testified, and one of the congressmen asked, um, What do they do when they cannot identify an asylum seeker's identity? They can't verify it. And they said basically that they allow them in. Uh, not surprised. Um, now, we have about uh, seven minutes, uh, and I want to cover one big topic, and then I want to leave time for each of you to make some concluding remarks. So put your thinking caps on and think of the last wind-up thing that you want to uh, share with our a very large audience. Uh, also, I've received uh, some questions from the audience, uh, and let me put one of those to, to Hans. The question says, uh, Heritage has proposed moving from a family-based immigration system to a merit-based immigration system. Several countries have already done that. Why does this make sense? Why should we move to a merit-based system? Hans, over to you. Well, Answer the questioner's uh, question. Sure. sure. Um, what folks need to understand is we're not saying we need to entirely move away from family-based immigration. The problem is how you define that. No one disputes that uh, if you immigrate to this country, you should be able to bring your spouse and your minor children with you. But unfortunately, the way the system is now, um, it's like a never-ending uh, 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 group that once you're in, then you can bring in, uh, try to bring in brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law, who can then bring in their spouses and adult children who are married and their spouses, it, it, it expands so far out from the immediate nuclear family that we're talking about like over seven, I think it's over 70%. Right, it's about our research says, what Hans said, 75% is family-based and 25% is right. merit-based. And we're suggesting that we just flip that, um, keeping right. the nuclear family together because we're pro-family and pro-legal immigrant. Uh, why does it make sense from a economic uh, standpoint? 
Well, because the, what you want to do is set up a system that is going to attract uh, individuals to the country who are going to be uh, beneficial, you know, not just to our economy, you know, everything from uh, professionals to vocational specialists. Uh, I mean, we're not just talking about bringing in lawyers and doctors and entrepreneurs. We're talking about bringing in plumbers and mechanics. And, you know, there's a whole gamut of uh, individuals who will help benefit our economy, but also benefit the cultural and social life. We should exercise selection in who we're bringing into the country to benefit America as a whole. Any kind of merit system like that is, is going to result in a, in a very diverse group of immigrants uh, coming in. Uh, but that is particularly important given the fact that we have turned very much uh, into a welfare state with uh, large government programs that cost uh, a great deal of money. And we want to ensure that individuals coming in are not going to end up as a drain on the taxpayer, uh, and certainly through our public assistance programs, but also will, like I said, benefit not just our economic needs, but also our social and, and cultural uh, uh, things that we have going on in the country. Well, I'm sure the audience feels the same way I do, that we could carry on this conversation for another few hours because there's so many other topics we'd all like to talk about. We've just run up against the clock. Um, and so we have four distinguished speakers. I want to give each of you a minute or less to give us your concluding remarks. And since I'm a gentleman, I'll start with the lady. Maria, over to you. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, everyone, for being on this panel as well. Um, I want to uh, let everyone know that on Friday, we're going to have a press conference that will promote the National Day of Remembrance all across the United States. And this National Day of Remembrance is to recognize Americans who were killed by illegal aliens. Um, this is something very dear to us. And if we don't know the problem, then we can't fix it. So we want to create awareness. I also want to mention that our Remembrance Project Legal Defense Fund has filed two amicus briefs in order to support the families, to support the rule of law in the Fifth Circuit Court, and also went all the way up to the Supreme Court. So our website is the remembranceproject.org, and I invite you to visit our website. And of course, we are 501c3 tax-deductible uh, organization. And I leave you with one um, case, Cully, and this is um, happening right now where an angel mom in Connecticut is going through this. Um, and I, I'm hoping that everyone out there will be act, become active so that we can stop these instances from taking place. An illegal alien from Haiti spent 16 years in prison. He was for attempted murder. The actual murder of someone else in that same incident was taken off the table. After he was released and served his prison sentence, we attempted to deport him back to Haiti three times. However, Haiti did not uh, take their citizen back and our government released him into the community. Five months later, he killed a 25-year-old young lady from Connecticut, Casey Chadwick, and now the illegal alien on a technicality is getting a new trial. Um, so these are things that we can work on policy to change that. So these countries should re, uh, repatriate, should be able to repatriate uh, their, their citizens. Thank you very much, Maria. Sheriff Louderback, any last thoughts? Thank you first to the listeners for informing yourself on probably one of the most critical issues facing the American public uh, 
here in our future. Thank you to Heritage Foundation and to the other panelists in here, some of my esteemed colleagues I've known for quite some time. I'll leave you with a couple of things as far as what's important to me and the, and the criminality of what we're dealing with here. It's just not, this will not stop. Uh, 57,000 apprehended uh, just in September alone. Just this week, DEA finds methamphetamine, coke, one of the largest $19 million worth of narcotics uh, this week alone. Uh, 10 foot tall um, pile of cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, just a tremendous amount of criminality going on. It will not stop. Uh, so I appreciate your time uh, and effort to educate yourself about this situation. Um, and again, thank the Heritage Foundation for, for putting this on in an attempt to educate our public. Thank you. We're delighted to have you, Tom. Any brief remarks, please? Yeah, you know, first of all, I want to thank Heritage Foundation. You guys do great work. Uh, you're not partisan, but you, you state the facts, you work on facts, you educate the American people. So for those folks watching, I hope you support this great foundation. Look, let me end with this. Why does Tom Holman get emotional? Why does he get angry on TV in front of Congress? Because if you see what I've seen in 34 years, you'd be angry too. It'd turn your stomach, some of the tragedies I've seen. Let me end with this. There's no downside to having a secure border. There's no downside unless illegal immigration. There's no downside unless illegal drugs that kill Americans. There's no downside in stopping 31% of women being raped going through that, you know, that smuggling cycle. There's no downside in children not dying on the border. There's no downside in taking millions of dollars worth of cartels that have killed border agents that smuggle drugs in this country and smuggle people. There's no downside. We have a right to secure border. We have a right to be a sovereign nation. We appreciate the people that joined today. Please call your congressman and senator and demand that they take action to help this administration secure our border. It will save lives. Thank you, Hans. Over to you for any last thoughts. Well, the one thing I want to say to folks is that, um, look, I I'm a son of immigrants. I support the Heritage Foundation supporters. We all support legal immigration. But those out there who claim that uh, if you are against illegal immigration, you are somehow anti-immigrant, that is just simply not true. In fact, it's a way of trying to shut us up and to shut down debate over this issue. As Tom said, there's no upside to illegal immigration whatsoever. There's uh, nothing uh, wrong with, and in fact, everything right with making sure we have a secure border. Uh, there's everything wrong with having sanctuary policies that recklessly endanger the residents of those uh, communities. And, and the fact that we want our in, uh, immigration laws enforced does not mean that somehow we're anti-immigrant. In fact, uh, those who support illegal immigration, I think, are endangering the support that the overwhelming support Americans show for legal immigration. And they should stop trying to, to extinguish the line between legal immigration and illegal immigration. Well, thank all of you for joining us, uh, Hans, Maria, uh, AJ, and Tom. And I turn it over to my colleague to conclude the program. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.